So we've been going through a series, we're in our 18th week, if you can believe that, of a 50-week series in which we're going through the book of Acts, all right? And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can um, turn to that. Um, if you don't, obviously you can use that on the phone, your phone app, um, or it'll be on the screen, certain passages that we talk about. There's Bibles in front of you too. But um, before we get into that, the, one of the things that this uh, passage caused me to start thinking about is how I viewed my parents when I was little, and especially my dad. Uh, so my dad, I, I just felt was invincible, and I think we all can relate to that. You know, when we were little, um, our, our fathers especially uh, just seemed to be like bigger than anything else. And I mean, I, I can imagine that when I was a kid, like a little kid, and when there were sirens blaring about tornadoes possibly touching down, you know, I, I bet I, I would think, uh, oh, my dad can take care of that. You know, if we were like in a parked car, for instance, and a, and a semi-truck was barreling towards us, I might have even thought, my dad can take care of that. I mean, we have this, this illusion. I had this illusion of my dad when I was younger. And one of the interesting things and, and challenging things then as you get older is you start realizing that your parents, especially your dad, uh, can't do everything. Um, they have limitations because we all have limitations. We are all ultimately limited. We realize that not only about our parents, but then we start figuring that out about everybody else. Everybody else around us, we're like, oh, wow, they have limitations. This person has limitations. And then do you know what we innately and subconsciously then begin to do? We attribute that idea of limitation to who? To God. Subconsciously, we live our lives in such a way where, I know I do, where I, I uh, misattribute some limitation to God, believing that, that maybe he's not as big as he claims to be. Of course, I would never say that out loud. Of course, you would never say that out loud. And maybe it is that you're not even consciously thinking that. But I, that innate understanding of limitation is something that we translate uh, to God as well as we do to others. So we're going to be talking a little bit about that in Acts chapter 12. Um, I want to catch us up. So we have, um, if you remember, we've talked about and looked at the stoning, the death of Stephen at the end of chapter 7 in Acts chapter 7. And that, that was the first Christian Jesus follower recorded in um, Acts who was killed for their beliefs, uh, for following Jesus. And if you remember then in Acts chapter 8, that death, that, that violent death then caused this tremendous persecution of all Jesus followers. So all people that at that point had given their life to the resurrected Jesus and decided to follow him and, 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 and to believe in him, they then experienced tremendous persecution that caused them to scatter to areas outside of Jerusalem. And this message of the resurrected Jesus then went with them, and they began then sharing the gospel of the resurrected Jesus to fellow Jews, to other Jews. And they primarily believed that this message was only for Jews until non-Jewish people called Gentiles start, started also receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they then received the free gift of the Holy Spirit because of that salvation. And so this just skyrocketed. 
I mean, it was like wildfire. I mean, Christianity was spreading by the thousands and tens of thousands, and it was transformative, and so many people experiencing that transformation. But there were people that weren't happy about this. Namely, Jewish and Roman officials, you know, who had some sort of prominence, you know, they started seeing this, this progression of, of uh, Christians, they call them. It was actually a derogatory term. Do you know that, Christians? It meant little Christs. Like, oh, there's all these little Jesuses walking around. So Christians were just spreading and spreading and spreading, and this was causing fear and panic amongst Jewish and um, Roman officials. And this led to where we find ourselves in Acts 12, verse 2. King Herod, it says, had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now, Herod was a Roman-appointed Jewish king. So he was a Jewish king, but he was under the authority of the Roman government. And Herod here is seeking political favor, political gain, certainly with other Jewish populations and officials, but also with the Roman government. He sought to uh, bring imprisonment, but also death to Jesus' followers. And he started honing in on leaders of the church at that time. And James was a really great choice, right? James was one of the original 12, brother of John, who walked with Jesus during his ministry. He arrested James and then quickly was able to put him to death. And so then, you know, who else would he go after? Arguably the leader of the church at that time, who was who? Peter. So in verses 3 through 4, it says, When King Herod saw that this met, that means the the death of uh, James, that it met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now, the the mention of the festival of unleavened bread is important in that it explains why it is that Herod um, uh, kept from killing Peter right away. With James, he was able to arrest James and have him quickly executed. But this festival, immediately followed by the Passover, the Jewish Passover, prohibited, according to Jewish law, Herod to, one, hold Peter in a trial, and two, execute him. So the only thing he could do at this point was put him in prison, and that sets the stage for what God was going to do. It also mentions that, that Herod appointed 16 guards, 16 Roman guards to look after Peter. Now, these 16 guards weren't present at the same time. Um, History tells us that that guards in this instance, what they would do is they would separate into shifts. So we see four shifts of four guards that would rotate. Why is that important? Well, it's important because these guards needed to be awake and they needed to be alert. I mean, Christianity was spreading and King Herod and other Jewish uh, population and officials and Roman officials wanted to see this squelch. So the last thing they wanted to do was to, one, have Peter escape prison or to have other Christians come in and, and free him. I mean, keep in mind that all of this started because presumably Jesus, in their minds, escaped. He didn't. He died and rose from the dead and was delivered from death. 
But they were like, wow, how much worse would this be if Peter escaped? So we're going to make sure at all times we have four guards, four Roman trained guards looking over Peter at all times. All right. We move forward. In verse 5 it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for God or to God for him. So I want you to catch that. The church was praying for who? For Peter. But what were they praying for? Let me ask you, and I want you to speak out loud, what do you think the church was praying for? For him to be freed? Okay, yep. What else could they have been praying for? Yeah, they might come after them. Yeah, okay. What else? Protection, like we said. Um, maybe that Herod would change his mind. Safety, safety before God would somehow intervene, maybe, for Peter. Who knows? <laughs> we don't. We don't know. We don't know what the church was praying for. But I could tell you this. They weren't praying for what God did because they were blown away and surprised, astonished. What did God do? Well, let's look at that. Starting with verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Now suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck, that is, the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it, and when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. All right, let's break this down. First thing. First thing to note is that Peter was handcuffed between two guards. Secondly, there were two other guards stationed at the doors coming into the cell and to the jail. Now, I remember being taught this story when I was in Sunday school. Uh, raise your hand if you remember being taught this story in some way, shape, or form when you were in Sunday school. Now, when I was taught this story, it was always explained to me that the guards were sleeping. But does it say anything about that? It only says that one person was sleeping, and that was Peter. It doesn't say anything about the guards. I would, I, I, would, I would bet my life that they weren't sleeping. And you want to know why? Because the penalty of being caught as a Roman soldier sleeping on the job, it's not a performance improvement plan, guys. The penalty for sleeping on the job, consider this information written by Polybius, an ancient Greek historian who wrote not long after this time, 
He wrote this, uh, quote, If the Roman soldier is found guilty of falling asleep on duty, he is punished by frustarium. What is that? This is carried out as follows. The tribune takes a cudgel, which is a, a short, thick, uh, wooden club, basically, and lightly touches the condemned man with it, whereupon all the soldiers then fall upon him with clubs and stones and eventually kill him. That's what would be in store for any soldier that would fall asleep on duty. Now these Roman soldiers, they were alert. They were awake. So whatever happened here is, is beyond miraculous, right? And what about the light that shone in the cell? What about that light that came uh, when, when the angel appeared? Possibly, maybe, did that blind uh, the, the Roman soldiers, which um, inhibited their ability to react and to stop Peter? Well, no, that's not the case. Why do we know that? Well, in verse 18 and 19 of Acts 12, it says this. In the morning... There was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. It wasn't until the next morning that it was confirmed or that it was reported that Peter had left the cell. Somehow, some way. If they had been incapacitated by a blinded light that enabled Peter to be able to slip through quickly, then why in the world did the angel tell him to get dressed? Get your clothes on. Put on the cloak. I believe, based on what the scriptures say, that in the Roman soldier's alertness, I believe that somehow, miraculously, they believed that Peter was still there. Even though he was leaving the cell. What about Peter? He had a front row seat. Now, first Peter was awakened. He was nudged by an angel. Imagine waking up that way. Secondly, the chains that held him on both sides with two guards, those just miraculously released, came off. Thirdly, as Peter began to progress with putting on his clothes, with then going through the doors of the prison, the soldiers didn't flinch. Not once did they try to stop him. Not once did they, did they give any indication that they were aware that Peter was escaping. And lastly, this large, very heavy iron gate, just open miraculously by itself. A cubic foot of iron weighs approximately about 400 pounds. And as Peter processed through the cell and ultimately the jail, he could not believe that what he was experiencing was actually really happening. He thought the whole time it was a dream. It wasn't until he left the cell and was standing in the street and the angel disappeared that he was like, wait a second. This is real. This, is, this really happened. But now Peter's a fugitive. He has to go someplace to lay alone. So in verses 12 through 13, it says this. When this had dawned on him that it wasn't a dream, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. 
Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. But when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they said. And when she kept insisting it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, a different James, he said, and then he left for another place. So first Peter was astonished about what happened. Then Rhoda, the servant, she was astonished, surprised. And then the followers of Jesus who had been praying for Peter and were praying at that moment were also surprised. These people were said as to be earnestly praying, yet when Rhoda told them that Peter was at the door, they insulted her. You're crazy. Ah, it's crazy Rhoda. Back at it again, guys. And then what do they say after that? They literally say that if in fact it was Peter, it would mean that Herod killed him and that it was instead his ghost. Now I want to go back to the question that, that I asked earlier. What was the church praying for? Now it says that they were praying earnestly for Peter. But what were they praying earnestly for? Now we don't know. But I would suggest that it wasn't for what God ended up doing. Peter's miraculous escape from prison was, was big. It was huge. And this was an enormously big, miraculous act done by an extremely big God. Now, I'm sure that the prayers of the church were genuine. I'm sure that they were sincere. But keep in mind that right before Peter was arrested... G James was arrested, and he was killed. Unquestionably, they were praying the same sincere and earnest prayers for James as they were for Peter, but yet James's life was taken. Peter's miraculous escape was not contingent on the bigness of the church's prayers. If the prayers of the church were what caused God to rescue Peter in a big way, then why did the, those prayers then not cause the same big God to act in the same big way for James? Where am I going with all this? That's a fair question to ask, by the way. We are loved by a big God who does big things, period. We are loved by a big God who does big things. But God's bigness is not contingent on our obedience. God's bigness is not contingent on the quality or the quantity of our prayers. God is who he is because of who he is. We cannot give in to the notion that God will do small things if we pray small or that he will only do big things when we pray big. 
Acts' inclusion of Peter's miraculous escape is, is not to give testament to the power or faithfulness of the church. That's not why this is in Scripture. The reason this is in Scripture is to provide testament to God's power despite the church. Great things do not happen because of great people. Great things happen because of a great God. The church was earnestly praying for Peter, but when God acted in a big way, they were astonished, surprised at what God did. So here's the deal. Do you believe in a big God? I mean, that's a legitimate question. And we, we can, and I do, nod my head when I, when I hear that. And when I say that, yeah, of course he's big. But is my life and my choices and my words, are they indicative of that? Do we believe that God is big and that he is in the business of doing big things? I pray for healing for many people. And whenever I pray for healing, I always say this. God, you are a God who can heal. I proclaim that you can, that there is nothing that can keep you from doing that if it's your will. That's who you are, God. That's what you can do. But I also understand, God, that you have a plan. You have a purpose that prevails, that supersedes my understanding. But you are not with limitation. Do you believe in a big God? Do you believe that he could do big things? You know, as I was preparing for this message... I was riding in my car on Monday, and as I'm prone to do, I, I asked God, God, what are you wanting to teach me in this passage? That's where it has to start first. What are you wanting to teach me? And this is what I, I heard God say to me. I heard God say, listen, I'm a big deal. That's what God's saying. I'm a big deal. Like, I'm the biggest deal, Adam. And there is nothing I cannot do. So why not just expect that? Why not just ask for that? If it's my will, there's nothing that can keep me from doing that. I started thinking, man, that's what we got to do. That's what I got to do, right? You know, the, we talk about these connection cards every Sunday. You know, we, we ask you to fill these out. You know, it's a great way for us to be connected with you. But there's a spot in the back where we ask for you to indicate how we can pray for you. We cannot limit our prayer, our needs, our requests. We cannot limit that to our understanding of each other's limitations. If God's in the business of doing big things, then, then ask for him to do big things. And you know what? If he wills to do just that, don't be surprised. Expect that. Trusting him if he reveals something else. 
But when those big things happen, because they do, don't say, wow, I wouldn't have guessed that. Say, yes, that's the God that I serve. That's my God. He's huge. There's nothing he can't do. If your marriage needs saved, there's nothing he can't do. If healing, physical healing is needed for your body because of cancer that has, that has stricken it or you're, you're confined to some sort of limited capacity, do you believe that a big guy can do big things if it is his will? You bet he can. There's no limit. So why not treat God as if he has no limitations? He's not going to mind. So on these cards, this is what I want you to do. As the worship happens here, um, they're going to lead us, and I want you to remain seated during that worship, and instead I want you to interact with these cards. There's a box in the back against the wall that says tithes and offerings, a white box. I want you to not limit your prayer request to your understanding of yours and my limitations. Instead, I want you to ask big. Ask big. If you're joining with us virtually, click that prayer button. Confidentially, that'll go to us and we'll be able to indicate how it is that we can pray for that. Pray big. Pray big because God's in the business of doing big things. And trust that his plan is perfect. He will prevail. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for the challenge and reminder of your bigness, of your greatness. You have no limitation. There is nothing you cannot do. And so, Father, I pray that we would see you as such and respond, trusting that a big God in the business of doing big things can do that in my life. And then according to your will, that we would trust and obey and never lose hope. I pray this in your name. Amen. As you leave uh, here this morning, I want you to take those cards that hopefully you wrote down, that, that big request, remembering the bigness of God. And I want you to put that in that box as you leave so that we can partner with you in asking a big God to do big things. Uh, so thank you so much for being with us here today. I want to, as we've been doing at the completion of each service through the series, stand with me, and we're going to proclaim this together, this creed on the screen. Say it out loud with me. We are the church. We have received power from the Holy Spirit. We are Jesus' witness to the world. We will give the love of Jesus to each other, to our community, and to the ends of the earth because we are the church. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon.